you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. In the summer between my first and second years of theological studies in Toronto, I was hired by an agency called Stop 103, a church-affiliated drop-in center located in a nondescript storefront on a section of Bloor Street that had definitely seen better days. Stop 103 ran a food bank. It offered hospitality to people who lived in the nearby rooming houses or who slept rough in the park. And it placed a fair bit of emphasis on supporting newly arrived refugees from El Salvador, offering, among other things, conversational English classes to them. My job that summer was to run a program that would place four high school students at the center as interns to urban and poverty ministry. The day I went to interview for this job, I sat in the tiny cramped office with the director, an enthusiastic and robustly passionate Anglican priest named Dennis Drainville, who had cooked up this idea and then managed to convince Toronto's Archbishop to fund it. Dennis went on from there to a a varied ministry that would land him as a sitting member of the Ontario Provincial Parliament for a term, and ultimately as the Bishop of Quebec. That summer, he was both overseeing Stop 103 and also writing a book on poverty in Canada for the National Church's publishing arm. Dennis explained to me the general shape of the program he was imagining for these four young students. I'd be together with them each day of the week, Monday through Friday, our day starting at 10 a.m. with a 90-minute long teaching time that I would lead. And then we'd all work together in the drop-in from noon until 6 when it closed. I was to arrange Friday morning visits to other urban ministries to meet with their staff and to get a sense of what they were doing and what sorts of theological but also social assumptions were forming the particular work of those missions or drop-ins or shelters. It was, to say the least, a rather major undertaking and more than a little daunting for a young theological student. What of those 90-minute daily sessions, Monday through Thursday for eight weeks? That felt like a lot of teaching. What did Dennis imagine me covering in those sessions? Well, he said, you need to start by exploring the Old Testament prophets, like Amos, looking at how they view poverty and how they critique social injustice. And the Magnificat, he said. Think of it as a Magnificat program. Huh. Well, when Dennis referred to Amos, I got it. 
I mean, Amos, who'd come down hard on Israel because, quote, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Surely Amos had much to say about downtown Toronto, about the kind of inequities that had grown and the ways that some prospered in extraordinary ways and others simply sank between the cracks. But the Magnificat, I mean, I I assume Dennis didn't notice the, the kind of the blank, puzzled look on my face because he did hire me at the end of that interview. You see, while I was certainly familiar with the Magnificat, with Mary's song from this first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke that we heard proclaimed this evening, I clearly had not paid enough attention to it to actually hear it. In my days attending this church, All Saints Parish, during university, I often attended the service of Evensong, in which the choir would sing magnificent settings of the Magnificat in its beautiful Elizabethan translation from the Book of Common Prayer, which begins, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And as it continued, the choir of men and boys located in those choir stalls up behind me would sing, He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. It was lovely. The settings were lovely. They sang beautifully. But somehow, in all of the loveliness, I missed the actual force of the text. Such that when Dennis had said to me, think of it as a Magnificat program, all I could think about was the choir of men and boys and the beauty. I actually hadn't known what he was talking about. I soon had to learn, and I have been in a real sense learning ever since. Now, if you step back from its context in the gospel according to Luke, this song of Mary could have come pretty much straight out of the Hebrew scriptures. Its imagery of the reversal, the great reversal of the powerful and the lowly, its giving praise to God from the mouth of one who says, I am a lowly servant, It's proclamation that God is doing a new thing for the sake of Israel, reimagining it. It's all the stuff of the prophets. Pointing to the similarities between Mary's song and the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel, a song also sung by an expectant mother with an unexpected child, in comparing those two The Old Testament scholar Rolf Jacobson once told me that he found it helpful to think of it as not being unlike what a musician does when they do a cover version of a well-known song. A cover version recasts in a new genre, Jacobson commented. And that's what's interesting. The audience has to know what the original is. In Hannah's case, it's a song of thanksgiving expressed by a woman who has just received word that she's going to have a baby, and she thought she never could. 
And now it's being expressed or recast as a song of thanksgiving of another individual, or pieces of it are, or textures of it are. That other individual, Mary, is an even more unlikely mother-to-be, a young woman not yet married, who has been given news by the angel that she is to bear this world-changing baby. And so, like Hannah before her, Mary sings. And she sings in the terms of the prophets of old, the same sorts of terms that they had sung when it came to God's world-changing ways. The old familiar order, the order that had been keeping some of their faces pressed down into the dirt while others feasted, that old order was going to be flipped. As the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. Where else do those words of Isaiah appear about the valleys being lifted and the mountains being laid low? Well, in the Gospels themselves, used as a cover song to introduce John the Baptist. Mary's song, then, is really an ancient message, now recast in a fresh expression for a brand new circumstance. Brand new, yet built on everything that God has been doing all along. In her comments on this text, Judith Jones observes that Mary's song magnifies the Savior who loves the whole world with a love that makes creation whole. And to this, Jones adds some reflections on the notes of judgment that are also there in the song. As the powerful are brought low and the proud scattered. And she says, God's saving judgment is for all of us, bringing us down from the pride that fills us with ourselves until we can't see either God or neighbor, bringing us up from the shame that distorts our worldview and convinces us that no one, not even God, could love us. Of course, it is still not all fulfilled at least not in its culminating entirety. There are still hungry and poor and powerless folks all around us, to say nothing of entire countries that are beset by things that leave people to die on the streets, whether that's raw poverty, natural disaster, military action, or some unfortunate combination of all three. No, it's still not fulfilled, which is why Dennis Drainville wanted me to have those students study and ponder and pray Magnificat. And that's why we hear it read and then sung in this Advent season. This is the season in which we say that God is not yet finished with us and our world, And that while Jesus Christ has come into the world and given it a light it never before knew, humanity still stumbles and stumbles badly. So no, 
We wait and watch and look and long for the fullness of this song to come to be. And in the meantime, we do what we can, however small, however local, however simple, to bring about foretastes of it in our own world. We're all Magnificat people, in other words, not just four high school students and a somewhat stumbling theological student who was trying to guide them along. We are all Magnificat people. We do well to remember the context for the song, too, which is a meeting of two women, Elizabeth and Mary, both pregnant with babies they'd not ever expected to be carrying. Young Mary betrothed to Joseph but not yet married, and her kinswoman Elizabeth, a woman thought too old to ever have a child. But there she is with swollen belly, impossible babies both. But in the Bible, impossible babies always mean that the Spirit of God is on the move. Why has Mary gone to see Elizabeth? and to spend three months there with her. I believe it was because Mary trusts that Elizabeth's home is a safe place to be, far from the gossip in the market back home in Nazareth, where the rumors will soon be buzzing about this pregnancy. The doors of the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah opened to Mary, which is, when you stop and think about it, a magnificat kind of loving hospitality to make room. And Mary remained with her there for about three months and then returned to her home. It's now left to tomorrow evening for the next chapter to be told. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.